Welcome everyone to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast, the podcast focused on leadership. The episode will begin shortly. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Dr. John Bedker Leadership Podcast. I am your host, John Bedker. I really am truly and thankful and grateful that you're tuning in, folks. We're going to continue a discussion today about leadership, and I'm going to use an axiom to focus on today, and that axiom is this. For leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. Okay, a couple of things there. Simple sentence seems like a simple idea. We're going to find out it's much more complicated, but Let's note the first word that I want you to focus on, and that is must. For leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. All right, not can, not could, not should. For leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. Why? Because otherwise, people think that that playing field isn't level that that distribution of the good things is not equally shared, that somehow the system is rigged, okay? So I'm going to talk about that today at some length. I'm going to begin, though, by talking about a piece uh, by David Leonhardt, written on October 24th, 2023, appeared in the New York Times. Here we go. It's called Grassroots Successes. Many Americans have come to see the political system as rigged. They worry that grassroots political movements are powerless to overcome entrenched interests, whether those interests are self-serving politicians, large employers, or dominant social media platforms. For most Americans, Progress has slowed to a crawl in recent decades. Income and wealth inequality have both soared. The top 1% have pulled away. There are plenty of examples about this and other examples of grassroots movements, though, that have remade American life. The Civil Rights Movement, the Women's Movement of the 60s, overcame long odds, as did the disability rights movement of the 70s and the marriage equality movement of the 2000s. Other examples, David Leonhardt writes, come from the political right. In the 1950s, in the 1960s, a group of conservatives, including Milton Friedman and Robert Bork, began trying to sell the country on the virtues of a low-tax, light regulation economy. For years, they struggled to do so and were frustrated by their failures. Friedman kept a list of newspapers and magazines that did not even review his first major book. So things weren't going well on that front. Then Leonhardt writes, but the conservatives kept trying. And the oil crisis that began 50 years ago, last week, eventually helped them succeed. A politician who embraced their ideas, Ronald Reagan, 
won the presidency and moved the U.S. closer to the laissez-faire ideal that was much more laissez-faire than almost any other country in the world. The conservatives who sold this vision promised it would lead to a new prosperity for all. They were wrong about that, of course. Since 1980, the U.S. has become a grim outlier on many indicators of human well-being. But the conservatives were right that overhauling the country's economic policy was possible. This history does not suggest that the political system is hopelessly broken. It instead suggests that the U.S. doesn't have a broadly prosperous economy largely because the country has no mass movement organized around the goal of lifting living standards for the middle class and the poor. If such a movement existed, it might well succeed. As I've detailed here just moments ago, as it has many times before. The central lesson that Leonhardt took from immersing himself in this past century of American economy is that it can change, sometimes much more quickly than people expect. When it has changed in a major way, it often has been because Americans have used the political system to change it. The future can be different from the past. Well, as I said, for all the cynicism about politics, it is worth remembering how often these grassroots political movements in the U.S. have managed to succeed, right? In the 20s and the 30s, the economy had a highly unequal economy and a Supreme Court that threw out most policies to reduce inequality. But activists like A. Philip Randolph, a preacher's son from Jacksonville, Florida, who took on a powerful railroad company, didn't respond by giving up on this system as hopelessly rigged. They instead used the tools of democracy to create mass prosperity. They spent decades building a labor movement that despite many short-term defeats, ultimately changed public opinion, won elections, and remade federal policy to put workers and corporations on a more equal footing. The rise of the labor movement from the 1930s through the 1950s led to incomes rising even more rapidly for the poor and the middle class than for the rich, and to the white-black wage gap shrinking. So one big lesson that David Leonhardt in his research uh, concludes is on the unparalleled role of labor unions in combating inequality. Okay, I've spoken about labor unions before, so I won't dwell on that now, but there really is a fact-based case that this we the people approach does in fact 
work. The clearest sign of our problem uh, currently is in this statistic. Again, this is from David Leonhardt. In 1980, the U.S. had a typical life expectancy for an affluent country. Today, we have the lowest such life expectancy, worse than those of Britain, France, Germany, Canada, Japan, South Korea, as well as some of the less rich countries like China or Chile. The main reason is the, in the, is the stagnation of life expectancy for working class people. For nearly a century, our economy has failed to deliver on the basic promise of the American dream. So says David Leonhardt, that living standards meaningfully improve over time for most citizens. Unfortunately, of late, that has not been true. So quickly back to our premise of today, our focus is this leadership axiom for leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. I'm going to try to paint here quickly a little bit of a word picture, something I think most people could easily grasp. Because when we think about leadership, it is not one-dimensional. It is often many, many variable. There are interests across a spectrum of ideas and beliefs. So let's start with a concept, a model, as I'm calling this, just a simple word picture. Let's talk about the fire triangle, something most people are very familiar with, nothing new or shocking here. Um, but this fire triangle really has these three legs, right? A triangle, oxygen, fuel, and heat. Well, what do we know? And we all know that in taking away any one of these can stop a fire if it's going or prevent it from starting if it's not. So it's not you have to do this to stop that. In the case of this example of fire triangle, any one of those three components will stop the initiation of a fire or one that is currently burning, it would put that fire out. If you removed the oxygen, if you removed the fuel or the heat. All right. So for leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. Well, sounds simple, but let's talk about some of these variables, right? We're currently in the U.S. Congress with this new speaker, Johnson, talking about providing aid to the two wars going on across the ocean. The new speaker says accountability. There's a variable. Accountability is hugely important for Ukraine. But we should release funds immediately to Israel. Okay, I don't think you're going to find an argument from many people about releasing military aid to Israel. 
But why would we have a separate standard for Ukraine? A different standard for Ukraine? Let's go back. For leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. Again, not can or could or should. It must be consistent. So, is it reasonable to think that we should have financial accountability, accounting on the funds given to Israel? Seems reasonable. Whatever that standard is, is it reasonable for leadership to be effective that we would have the same, the consistent accountability for funds going to Ukraine or other parts of the world? The simple answer is yes. But when you start putting a variable in, okay, go back to our idea of that fire triangle. Well, what if I did away with the oxygen? That would solve it, right? Well, what if I say in this case, I'm not going to treat the Israeli-Hamas war the same as I treat the Russia-Ukraine war. That becomes a leadership challenge, and I will argue a leadership problem. For leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. So what do we know? Well, there's people. There's a commitment, and there's weapons, right? Another kind of triangle with you, if you will, here in this military sense. Well, what's happening in Ukraine? Well, we are now beginning to give them not just defensive weapons, which are good, which are important, some would argue critical, but we're now also giving offensive. In order to win the game, in order to win the war, we need to score on offense as well. So these systems, the attackums, and most recently this fracum, SAM weaponry are steps in the right direction. They take advantage of older technology uh, with newer technology, with an old idea and a new idea. You could use a Sparrow or a Sidewinder missile, something in great supply and well-documented technology with a new base, with a new technology base. But we would need to have people, and a commitment to bring these weapons to bear. Well, in Ukraine, you have a very committed people, but a small number. So we need to leverage that with the weaponry. If the people were not present, we couldn't do it. If they weren't committed in their quest for self-determination, they would not be successful. And if they didn't have the armament, the weaponry, to win the war, they wouldn't be successful. So when a leader makes a decision, he has to look at many components. 
in this military example, people, do we have sufficient numbers capable of training, knowledge, and experience to advance the war? Are they committed to do that for the good of their country, for the good of their cause? And do they have the weaponry to make the outcome what they want it or need it to be? So, a little different, if you will, fire triangle. But any one of these absent can be a real problem. Let's talk about currently here in the U.S. quickly. Guns, another prime example. People, commitment, and weapons. We used that just a moment ago in our military word picture. Let's do it again here with the gun culture and the gun crisis in the United States. Well, people, fire guns, and they may have a commitment to do that. They may have a grievance. They may have a cause. They may have mental illness. But whatever motivates them, whatever causes them, whatever drives them, unfortunately, if they have a weapon, automatic or semi-automatic, if they have high-capacity magazines, if they have bump stocks, all sorts of fancy words here, but things that allow that individual, that person, with a commitment to do something bad, for whatever reason, to take out many lives in a short amount of time. But what if we take away, again, like the fire triangle, what if we take away just one of those components? Well, you know what? It likely won't happen. For instance, if people in the United States did not have automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons, if they did not have the capability of having large capacity magazines, if they did not have these bump stock capabilities to make a regular weapon an automatic weapon, what would be the outcome? Well, we've had an assault ban before, and we frankly know the outcome. Deaths would go down. Mass shootings would go down. But for leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. So, we may not be able to alter some things. Sadly, tragically, there will be people that suffer mental illness. There will be people of grievance who feel a need, an absolute compulsion to do the wrong thing. Those are difficult leadership challenges. But if they did not have the weapon, we will have diminished that capacity. We will have broken that fire triangle, so to speak. Okay. So an example with guns in the gun culture, certainly this week with the mass shooting up in Lewiston, 
Maine, a tragic event, to the war in Israel with Hamas, and to the conflict in Ukraine resulting from the invasion from Russia. It's an opportunity to simplify, folks, to do the right thing, and to do that by saying, how can I affect positively a potentially tragic outcome? And we do it by reducing or eliminating one of those legs that can cause that event to become catastrophic. And whether it's that war or it is the case in Lewiston, Maine, with another of our now 565 mass shootings so far in the United States to say, leaders, is this really the world you want? Is this, is this the country you want? Do you want to have this go on and on and on? It's not conjecture. It's real. And I believe the answer should be clearly no. What can we do? Well, we're not going to eliminate mental illness, folks. We're not. We're not going to say that there are not going to be people with a grievance who feel the need to do something unlawful, something lethal. No. But can we do something about another variable in this equation? The weapons. And the answer is yes. So let me close with that saying, for leadership to be effective, it must be consistent. And how can it be consistent? By our endearing effort to do the right thing, to eliminate, to mitigate that component of a leadership challenge that will save life or minimize the loss of life. We must try to do the right thing. All right. Thank you all. Hope you're well. We'll talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tell your friends and of course, please follow our podcast and subscribe. Thank you again for tuning in.